Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1. That miracle that happened. That one time. This is Episode 84, France, the Enemy, Part 7. France and the Origins of the Industrial Revolution. This will be a shorter episode than usual. I've decided to make this a separate episode from the Royal Repression episode I promised last time. That'll come next. And remember, you can always email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's recap the main theories of the origins of that miracle that happened that one time and cast France into them. Theory one is that England developed a culture more oriented towards middle-class values and valuing middle-class people. This includes valuing improvement over stasis. It was okay and even encouraged for ordinary people to take some risks and try to be successful in business or invention. For most of the world, for nearly all of time, this was highly unusual. We have a ways to go in exploring this issue, but we'll go further into Paul Slack's work on the culture of improvement in England and McCloskey's notions of bourgeois values dignity, and virtues in future. We're going to relate this to other societies like Venice, Classical Greece, the Abbasid Caliphate, Song China, and Tokugawa Japan. And probably even take another look at the Mughal Empire. And we'll do this as soon as we finish this second Hundred Years War arc. The core idea is that the middle class had confidence born from dignity on the one hand, They weren't utterly despised by the ranks above them. And on the other, a habit of improving whatever they were doing. Adam Smith's famous example of timepieces, pocket watches, falling in price 95% over a hundred years, while also improving in quality is a classic pre-miracle example. By the way, economic historians have just recently tried to validate that this actually happened and were able to verify it by a combination of estate valuations and secondhand sales in the proto-newspapers of the time. So we know the 95% reduction in price with increased quality was real. There are many ways to come at this idea of English middle-class dignity. Paul Johnson's English, or one may say Anglish, particularism, really focusing on the Anglo-Saxon origins. There are my Viking Ark episodes, which take a different point of view. You can find more in the Cromwell episodes. There's a sort of Christopher Hill, semi-Hegelian idea that the Puritan Revolution moved or lurched towards the modern world. You can see another tack at this in the Adam Smith and Religion episodes, And there'll be many more episodes on Paul Slack's ideas and McCloskey's ideas. There were Gregory Clark's ideas that we've mentioned that the upper class had many middle-class people in their extended families through unusual demographic patterns. We haven't tackled this broad theory straight on, but we have the background to think about it from a lot of angles. The ground is being prepared for the eucatastrophe, as Tolkien might have put it, So how does France fit into this? Well, 
Royal monopolies mean the always constant threat of royal favorites taking over your successful business. Full stop. The ideas of présence mean that middle-class people don't have dignity in the English sense. It is far more precarious. Full stop. The habit of invention and improvement, well, the French language at the time did not have the developed vocabulary for it the way England did. That's Paul Slack's conclusion. Also, 18th century France still had limits on business via government control, regulation, and the granting of monopolies that England was able to free itself from during its civil war. We also saw with Jonathan Scott's How the Old World Ended that most of the destructive medieval-type economic policies and institutions were destroyed by the English Republic and never came back. In France, they never had the Puritan middle-class rule with its implicit threat to repeat itself if the upper classes screwed up too much or took too much power for themselves. That was always in the background in England, never in France. France would have to wait for the revolution to destroy all of its medieval institutions. So, France fails theory number one. Theory number two, this is the one where the factors of production dominate. Concepts like human dignity get pushed aside, not because they're too soft. Obviously, in something like the greatest social change in the history of the world, these things matter deeply, but because they're assumed to be too difficult to measure, intractable, and various forms of causality are too hard to trace. And so this is a fair point. In this theory, originally associated with Robert Allen, but developed by many others, England has high wages, so capital was invested in labor-saving machinery, leading to improved water power, wind power, and then steam power. Also, coal substitutes for wood and charcoal. So, chemical industries, anything metallurgical is better provided for. Transportation gets improved also to offset high wages, so Roads, canals, shipping, eventually railroads, allow for more labor specialization to make better use of high-wage labor. Sometimes people find this too reductionistic because it comes down to one equation for production. But it has a lot of elegant explanatory power, and it avoids the embarrassment of having to assert that for the purposes of the miracle, the Dutch-English culture that developed was superior to other cultures. Their values better supported human flourishing. And you know, avoiding embarrassing ideas is a human thing and has a big impact on theory, even when it should have none. So how does France do? They did not have high wages. They nevertheless had full access to English and Dutch technology and greatly increased reliance on water and wind power, to the point that a good grain harvest could still cause hunger if the rivers were frozen or there was too little rain to power the water wheels. When you study the revolution, the weird weather of 1788 to 1790, with first frozen rivers and then dry rivers from not enough rain, is always a big reason for the urban unrest that followed. And this derives from failures of production based on water power. And yet, they did not have high wages. 
Information flowed around the country in a far more primitive way, leading to crazy rumors because they weren't as literate, and even the literate people were often not as well informed. And last episode, we even discussed the lack of a high-wage policy in France. So France fails theory two in a a more obvious way, but theory two leaves us with the question of where did those high wages in England come from? And the production function that balances labor and capital obviously can't really apply very well in France because it isn't free enough. They could build great roads and canals and did, but they could not eliminate the tolls, discouraging the movement of goods and people. For entrepreneurs, the chance of an outside power, noble or royal, coming in and crushing your efforts was a real factor, always there in the background or the mind of the entrepreneur, another crucial missing piece of the production function. But there I go, I'm criticizing theory number two, which isn't relevant to the question of whether France fails at the theory. Theory three is another socially neutral theory. It holds that all people in every culture are always trying to improve their lot in life, regardless of cultural details. This is a theory that takes Smithian ideas very seriously. All cultures are equal this way, and all elites are getting in the way, hogging everything good for themselves, and thereby discouraging everyone else. This is kind of a funny idea. This holds that great progress is sort of an accident. The elites have to sort of forget to be as terrible or awful as they usually are, just for a while. You can see the intellectual and emotional appeal of the idea. The elites, through misunderstanding or of a sudden change in moral values, these are almost always temporary, stop extracting the maximum of wealth from their subject populations. The population creates wealth in the Smithian way, and if this can just last long enough, we get a miracle. It's interesting because it is far simpler to incorporate world history. Look at France. They were not going to get first takeoff, even though they were near neighbors and rivals of England. Their elites were close to maximally rapacious. Definitely not fully maximally rapacious as in India when the Mughal Empire was falling apart. Especially, they did allow some wealth to develop in the towns, especially in the regions near Flanders and the West Coast. But come on, overall, they were in the ballpark of as bad as the Roman Empire. My descriptions of peasants and artisans being basically permanently barely able to live probably applied to more than half the population. While in England it applied to more like a quarter or a third, so they fail theory three. But after the Second Hundred Years' War is over, they were able to copy the miracle and be well underway by the 1830s. The revolution would break the power of the nobility and medieval town institutions and countryside institutions, which seems to be a key part. As Napoleon would clear out much of the rapacious medieval detritus in western Germany, and northern Italy. Theory four. Now, this is the supply theory. Supply of knowledge, supply of technical skills. This is famously Joel Mokier's theory, though many have ably assisted since. France certainly succeeded on the high science side. Just, yes, they did. If not for Newton and Hooke, France was probably number one in high science. But technical education was oriented towards state service, 
and mainly limited to the nobility. And I think we lack the background for this discussion right now in our story of the miracle. We will get there, though. So let's leave it with this. The evidence shows that France did not have that combination of practical and creative drive in the middle class to nearly the same degree. France was still pretty good in this area, on the global scale, very, very good, with many advances and a sophisticated understanding of many of the most challenging military issues. If that brain power had been applied differently, but it was not. So we have to give France a failing grade on theory four as well, though this is where they do best. As we look into the theories more deeply, we will see that France had the potential for the miracle if Britain failed, if, and I say if, this theory is true or sufficiently true. Theory five. Theory five is the kitchen sink fallacy. No. (laughs) Theory five is the kitchen sink theory. Everything is required. All the other theories are necessary causes. They all have to be satisfied. They support and feed one another along with very many other necessary causes, and maybe the miracle was so delayed in human history because it just took so long to get all the right elements lined up somewhere. In this theory, France was lacking in the key dimensions, though there would be a vast improvement in institutions and cultural values in the years after the Revolution, and this improvement would accelerate after Waterloo. According to Theory 5, France could never have the miracle, but according to Emmanuel Todd's anthropological theory, France was uniquely poised to be the first continental power in Europe to get the miracle, at least the Paris Basin and northeast France was, because the French could relatively easily adapt to English practices. Okay, so that's how I'm applying our five theories to France. In the run-up to the miracle, which arguably is getting going around 1760, though obviously Smithian-type growth had been underway in England from Tudor times. If most Europeans were living with the equivalent of $2 a day in 2020 dollars, the English were earning 6 and the Dutch were earning 8 speaking very roughly. For the middle classes, the English were earning about double the French, But the big thing is that the middle classes were a far larger proportion in England and Holland. This is the consequence of Smithian growth, which we will see also happened at times in the ancient world, in Song China, in Tokugawa, Japan, possibly the Abbasid Caliphate, the Mughal Empire in India. And these examples lasted decades before the mechanisms of disaster kicked in. The exploration of the mechanisms of disaster are worth exploring in depth. Certainly, Theory 3 requires that we look at it. But beyond economic theory, in literature, there's the ruin of Cache idea from Roberto Coloso, which he argued is one of mankind's earliest ideas. It is our proto-literature. Very tough, very harsh people can develop a prospering society But the people who grow up in it see the harsh elements as bad. Oh, because they are bad. And they no longer see or feel the necessity for them. A kind of blindness or forgetting. And they make a society that is ever more prosperous. Which then attracts 
the wolves, the human barbarians, who then take them down. Because the prosperous people have lost the toughness their grandparents had that ultimately protected their civilization from the barbarians. Uh, This is, by the way, the sort of core conservative view of history, the notion of fragile civilizations, and seems the best fit for the facts so far. Though I don't think we really have any perfect theories. Economic historians take a different approach, of course, but when you're trying to understand the failure of Song China, their failure was the Mongols, by the way. I'm not sure which approach is better. I mean, we have these five theories on the one side, and then the Mongols are over there. They're just a brute fact, a brutal fact. This is another of the potential topics for that mythical season two. Okay, so that's France and the theories of the Industrial Revolution. Next episode, we're going to take a look at royal repression. But first, conversations with Cami. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Cami, we just listened to episode 84, and we are back to high-level abstractions in our theory of history. I know that's not your favorite thing. What do you say? Okay, so you have these five theories about how the Industrial Revolution came to be. Yeah, and so these are from an article by Sheila Ogilvie, who's an economic historian at Cambridge, who's, I think she's probably one of our most respected, respectable-ish type academics working in the field today. Right, you've quoted her work before. Yeah, Yeah, episode 70. But what I'm hearing, unless I'm hearing wrong, is that France fails all these theories. Yeah, France, according to, if these theories are correct, France was not going to be the country that initiated the Industrial Revolution that started the miracle. It needed England. It needed England, right. Okay, so I followed that. To which I have to ask... What is the reason for spending so much time on this then, on, on France? <laughs> My wife is telling me, you're wasting time with France. I love it. It's a really good question. I I sort of gave an intro to it, oh, back in episode 78, I think, where France is the enemy. The Second Hundred Years' War, particularly the Napoleonic Wars, militarily, the French Revolution, socially, are a threat to the miracle. They were sort of the last things that could have could have prevented England from dominating the world in the 19th century the way that she did. And so anything that could have prevented that is something that I feel like I have to pay attention to, and that's the Second Hundred Years' War. France is the enemy in the Second Hundred Years' War, though episodes uh, 86 and 87, we're going to have an interlude where France and England are allied. But, yeah, I just thought we needed to understand France. And plus, having a little bit more in-depth understanding of France as we had of, of Holland, and we'll go back to Holland, too, for the reasons that they failed in the miracle. I think it helps highlight and contrast England, especially when we're talking about those are the other five theories as applied to England. Well, yeah, England's a much different place. The theories seem to fit better there, which is 
why the Industrial Revolution, I guess, took off there. Well, I think that's why the theories exist, because the, the theories are all thought up after the fact. We, we look at the world and we go, the most important thing that ever happened in sort of social terms, economic terms, the, the thing that changed the lives of people the very, very most of anything that's ever been, that's ever happened, it's the catastrophe. it's the miracle. It happened in England. It started there. So you're looking at why England? Why yeah. not France? So why not? Everyone is going, why? Looking at this thing and, and trying to figure out reasons. And they're coming up with these theories. And so we have the five theories Sheila Ogilvie puts out. We have Jonathan Scott's theory. And then, you know, we have our old, more standard theories of history, which, you know, have some explanatory power as well. And here we sit, you know, in the 2020s, trying to make sense of it all. It's sort of a journey. We're just going to explore it all and see how close we can come to figuring it out, at least for our, our own satisfaction. Well, it's been quite a journey. Yeah, learned a lot. If I could plug the upcoming episodes on the War of the Quadruple Alliance. When I started this, I thought that uh, that was a stupid war no one ever needed to pay attention to. I'm going to talk about that, maybe give it a paragraph. It turns out to be pretty fascinating, really interesting, and quite important. I also thought the Hanoverian kings were nothing. I was going to ignore them. Uh, now I realized I was wrong about that. <laughs> I thought the Jacobites were just, you know, pathetic, aristocratic losers hanging around in the courts of Europe. But no, I'm going to have to talk about that too. I was, I was wrong about that. There's plenty of myths out there. Not everybody has the same myths that I carried around with me a few years ago. But as we learn more, as we do all this research and put the podcast together and just think on all these issues and talk about them. So it sounds to me like we all have our little part in history here. One of my biggest surprises was the importance of Methodism. Some people have the theory that it was Methodism that was responsible for the for a lot of the stability of England in the mid and, and late 18th century. I kind of like theory five. The kitchen sink theory, that all of the above are required to feed each other and enable each other to, to do something like the miracle, to make yeah. it all work. I, I see each one of these components, and they're all great little, they're great theories, not little theories, they're great theories. But in my mind, it takes the kitchen sink working together like spokes in a wheel or yeah, it sure seems stronger if we have them all working, right? And it's it's harder to argue that just one of these mechanisms is enough. But we do have some great minds out there that really push their favorite theory. Theory one, you know, has McCloskey and and Paul Slack and a few others. And two has all the people around Robert Allen. Four has all the people around Mokir. And three has a lot of adherents. Three seems to be very attractive to people in academic economic history today. Uh, but when they're all working together, to me, that's more of a miracle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I, theory three I have the most fun with. I mean, I you know made sure we did nine episodes on uh, Adam Smith so that we can understand the basis for that, that we're, that we're talking about something that applies to all human beings, not to Right, that English we're all people. trying to... To make better, right? Yeah. But the, the funny part, the part that, I don't know, tickles my dark humor is that all of humanity is cursed with 
with elites that are just holding us back and they're just being awful all the time, completely rapacious, grinding everybody's face in the mud. Trying to keep their power in place. Yeah. And the whole trick for the miracle is for them to get distracted for a little while to <laughs> look the other way while the rest of us get on with moving the world forward. <laughs> and if, if they're distracted enough, we could do all right. Although you could make the argument, of course, and I think I will, and many people have that it took changes in morality to stop the elites from being maximally rapacious. And that that is really what did the job in England, changes in the values of the elites. Although you could argue, none of the economic historians argue this, but I might try to lay this out. None, but you will. Not. Right. Okay. <laughs> I am not afraid. You're the, not trying to keep a professorship anywhere. So. The Puritans, through their revolution and head chopping, well, they didn't chop that many heads, but through their revolution showed that you couldn't really push around the yeoman farmers and the middle class people of the cities or you risk losing everything. And I keep pushing at these ideas that people in the past lived with different background notions than we live with today. And that that would really have to be in the background. And, and it was kind of even in the foreground in the Stuart Restoration. Remember when the Stuarts were, were thinking of establishing some monopolies to raise money in the 1670s, and someone just, a voice in the crowd says, well, the king's late father lost his head for an idea like that. And so then you didn't see it. <laughs> you didn't see mon didn't monopolies reestablished right. under the Stuarts and later. I think that has to have an impact, but we'll see. Holler did some work on this. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that from Holler than you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we may or may not have more Puritans in our future. And thank you for coming on the program. You're welcome. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>